Hi everyone, we're two girls, we're bored, and this is Suddenly Grown. We're in our last year of college, so if you're in your early 20s, finishing high school, or in college and you just want a vibe, stick around. However, if you're also significantly older and you want to get into the minds of some 20-year-old women, but in a non-creepy way, come ahead and join us. Yeah, so this is our first podcast. We are very excited to be sharing this with you. Uh, the two of us have been talking about doing a podcast for about two years now, mm-hmm. and this is something that we've finally gotten around to. You know, we have these incredibly long conversations, sometimes intelligent, sometimes not. Most most times not. Yeah, and <laughs> we figured that we might as well record them and put them on the internet, because all the cool kids are doing that. Yeah, I mean, it it really fell in line with how we were feeling about the pandemic, to be honest, because I feel like we... Or at least personally, I put off a lot of things in college to my last year because I was like, oh, I'm going to do all my classes. I'm going to be very serious. And then when I'm finally a senior, like now, I'm going to get to enjoy my life, go out, do things that I never had time to do. But that just wasn't the case. And I just learned one of the lessons I learned throughout this pandemic was to do the things that you love progressively. And so I've been doing that again. So I picked up um, art as a hobby. I draw now. And I also started reading again, which is something that I, I just, I lost, you know, you and I were pretty mm-hmm. avid readers when we were young and I can speak for the both of us that we lost it. Absolutely. I think before we met, so we met when we were 14, which is when we were babies in high school and we were freshmen um, and we were ferocious readers in middle yeah. school. I would like inhale books I would go to the library at school every single day like after I finished my lunch to like go return any books and pick up new ones for the next few days for me it got to the point where the librarian librarian the like library the library lady (laughs) she the librarian whatever she knew me like we she knew me and like sometimes she would have books for me set up because she knew the type of books I liked Mm -hmm. I was a big fan of fantasy so I read a lot a lot of vampire books that was just my niche like not as much of like um the twilights but I liked um vampire academy I liked uh there was this there was a series it has a moon on it I really don't remember the name anymore but I would just oh no there was like a blue book and there was a green but I I know Mm -hmm. what you're talking about yeah and then even like beautiful creatures that series Mm -hmm. I got really into yeah what about you yeah vampires were your thing I think mine was dystopian I feel like the dystopian genre was just becoming popular when I was in middle school Mm -hmm. um I think the first one that I read was I read Hunger Games when it became popular Mm -hmm. and then I was like oh you know I really like this and I figured out that this was the type of book I like to read so I read a lot more and then I remember I distinctly remember I was sitting in algebra class next to one of my friends and I was like, you know, I, all these books are like very similar. They're in this ridiculous society that they think is perfect, mm-hmm. but ha- they have a glitch. Yeah. And there's always a girl and a guy. And she's like, yes. She was like, that's called the dystopian book. And I was like, oh. And I was like, okay, so these are the type of books I like to read. Exactly. Um, and I was a bit of a snob. I definitely read a lot of the dystopian books before they became popular. And I'm weirdly proud of that. Mm-hmm. You were not only a small, but you also like to read what we call pink books. That was like Sarah Dessen and like and her posse. Sarah Dessen is not pink books. Mm. So for the general public, pink, pink books is, is a term, term that we 
came up with, I think, some point in high school to describe the books that you could sit down and read in a few hours. They are usually pink. They usually have a girl on the cover. Mm -hmm. And the main topic is usually about how much she hates her life. And there's usually a boy involved somewhere in there. Yeah. And it's it's very vanilla, you know, like she's dealing with probably an unpopular girl. It, it's just like a Disney movie made into a book with a little bit more romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is what I feel like that very accurate, accurately describes it. I think I had a healthy, a healthy combination of dystopian novels and pink books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I distinctly remember in seventh grade, one of my one of my friends, my actually my science lab partner, she made fun of me for always reading pink books. And she was like, I bet you couldn't read a real book if you tried. Oh my god. And that's actually how I started reading the City of Bones series. Oh mm, my god. Cassandra Clare. That doesn't fit into like dystopian, but that fits into like the fantasy realm. Cassandra Clare, I can still read her books to this day. I can't say that I can read a lot of the books that I read when I was younger, but the mortal instruments set me the fact that I could read it when I was 13 and Mm -hmm. read it when I'm 21 that says something that says a lot and the fact that she had spin-offs actually the mortal instruments isn't my favorite it's the um the clockwork angel the yes the 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 trilogy trilogy yeah when they go to London that that I know that you like historical you know you like historical Mm -hmm. fiction I'm not a big fan of historical fiction but this was it satisfied my need for fantasy and a bit more maturity you know Mm -hmm. and like and which is something that I've been looking for in the past few years as I've kind of like fallen back in love with reading because I kind of felt ashamed of the fact that I would read and read so much fantasy when I was younger and I felt like as an adult I had to read books that you know were more mature and I Every time I would read in college, I'd read things like Michelle Obama's memoir. I'd read The New Jim Crow. I'd read Educated or The Handmaid's Tale, which are amazing books, but they're extremely heavy. And sometimes you just don't want to depress yourself with a book like that all the time, right? And so I wasn't Mm -hmm. reading a lot. But now I'm going back and finding myself reading like adult fantasy and I'm vibing with it. Yeah, and I think we were talking about this earlier, but a lot of the books that you're reading now, it's actually a, there's a, there's a name for that genre. It's called New Adult. It is pretty much young adult books, but a little bit more racy mm-hmm. um, and more mature themes. Mm-hmm. And it's called New Adult. And they're, the books are really entertaining. I personally really enjoy that. I feel like anyone who very much enjoyed reading young adult, because I can still read most young adult books, mm-hmm. except I find it more and more difficult to relate with a sophomore in high school worried about her homecoming date. Right, right. Well, um, you know, and so... However old Bella was worried about a vampire and a werewolf fighting over her child or her... Yeah, it's, yeah you can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> can't relate. No. Do you remember um, just how crazy we got into that? Like, Team Jacob, Team Edward. And now... I can't even stand that series. <laughs> Book fandoms were real, though, and I feel like they still are to some extent, because I know you just read a new book, right? Um, yeah. I believe it's called Siren's Call. I did, by Jessica Cage. So I found her on Book Talk, because, again, like part of my, I'm an adult now, let me read more mature books, is I want to read more books by authors of color that have um, characters of color. You know, I 
it, it didn't strike me as odd when I was younger that I was reading white books. It, for some reason, it just didn't seem weird. And then I read Things Fall Apart in the 10th grade. And I was like, wait a second, this is my first time ever reading a book by an African or by a Black person in general. And then on top of that, these characters are not white. That's weird. And then after that, I read like books by Kimamanda. Jim, Afterwards, I read um, Americana and I started reading her books. And now I'm reading fantasy by Essence Cage that falls into the, like, that satisfies my need for an imaginary world. It's just so strange. And like, I love mermaids. Mermaids, you think, you know that my favorite, like, Greek god is Poseidon, right? Just because, like, the water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so this fits, like, my love of water and also characters that are Black and an author that is Black. And I just feel like I'm supporting her. And I really like that. Have you been reading books by um, authors of color? Yeah, so this is also something that I, again, I grew up reading, I guess, what you would call white books with white protagonists. And it's not even something that I thought was off. Like, I never questioned it because I just was like, oh, I live in America. I'm a person of color living in America, and I just will not see representation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I never really expected it. So anytime I would see, like, an Indian character or they'd eat Indian food and be like, oh, look look at that. Mm -hmm. And that would uh, fulfill me. But I think, similar to you, I, during quarantine, spend a lot of time on the book side of TikTok. Mm -hmm. And so I did get a lot of recommendations for not just books by people of color, but actually books written by people from South Asia. And the experiences that I've had reading South Asian books about South Asia in the past just were not great. But uh, I am trying to be more conscious of what I read and what I consume. Um, And so my list, I haven't read any yet, but they're on my list. Okay, that's great. Because I do remember a specific book that we both read, but never really discussed until recently was Tiger's Curse. You remember this one? I do remember this book. So this book is the reason that I thought that I just could not read South Asian books, Um, which is so unfortunate because the book is written by a white woman. The author is white. Uh, The protagonist is white. But the premise of the book, like all the other characters are Indian Mm -hmm. and the book takes place in India. And it was just one of the most bizarre experiences that I've ever had and I think it's because I was 15 or 16 when I read it and I just could not figure out why I hated the book so much and I just assumed that it was because it was about India and not well done and I just assumed that that's what the rest of the genre would be like as well yeah and I and and, you know for people who don't know like what Tiger's Curse is or have never heard it this this is a summary the last thing teenager Kelsey Hayes thought she'd be doing over the summer was meeting Ren a mysterious white tiger and cursed Indian prince when she learns that she alone, yes, this white girl, she alone can break the tiger's (laughs) curse. Kelsey's life is turned upside down. The unlikely duo journeys halfway around the world to piece together an Indian prophecy, the prophecy of India. (laughs) Find a way to free the man trapped by centuries-old spell and discover their path path to their true destiny and like there are there are not one but two there are three tiger's curse books and the best part it is a trilogy it is yep, it is a trilogy and, and there's a love tri- there is a love triangle like there is not one tiger there are two tigers, two tigers. they are brothers and kelsey flip-flops between them like she 
the main character would in any good love triangle. Why do they always have to be brothers, too? Like, don't you have respect for family? That's just some fucking nasty thing. I think it's because, at least in this case, the brothers didn't really get along in the first place. And so what? That does not mean you get to go sleep with someone's brother. Like, she didn't that does not happen in the book. I but, know. Or at least I don't remember. <laughs> but That doesn't happen in the book, but there were some steamy moments with the black tiger. I forgot what his name was. <laughs> but, but yeah, the book was... It just made me so uncomfortable, and I think to characterize it perfectly... Somehow this book has 4.06 stars on Goodreads. I judge all books by what is seen on Goodreads now. I take the comments with a grain of salt, but I think this one really hit home. It was, have you ever been in the company of one of those people who is not vindictive or mean, but is unintentionally racist in a way that makes you feel really uncomfortable? Maybe they mimic a foreign accent and think they're being funny, or they make a joke and don't know history well enough to know that it's not funny. This book is like one of those people. I think Miss May, Miss Emily May, really just, she nailed it. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. Like, that was also, when I read that book, that was also, like, one of my first few encounters with India as well, right? And so imagine somebody, and I think that authors have to be very careful when they do this, when they introduce characters of color or they want to talk about a culture that they might not understand because that might be their exposure that they're giving to certain people, you know? for you mm-hmm. it turned you off of books with Indian for me it turned me off the genre for you you are fortunate that you have a best friend who is Indian and shut that down really quickly like I would come to but like in... Tiger's Curse pool. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine you lived in the Midwest somewhere and you randomly picked up that book and you your name was like you were blonde and your name was Samantha and you picked it up and you were like so this is what India is like right and it's not to, it's really not to make fun of any blonde samanthas i'm sure y'all are fine but it's like you it, that is what happens sometimes because interactions that you have with something that is not in your environment that you don't have access to that is what's going to stick by you you're going to think all indian dudes are red and they're all tigers <laughs> and not to I'm not dismissing this book. I am I sure the author had a reason to write about the Indian culture. I'm just very curious as to why she chose to write about a culture that's so different. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, fine. We can we can play devil's advocate. advocate because she does have a white protagonist, right? I know, I know. And I know, so I'm curious why she chose to write this book in a situation, or like, just in an entire, like, it's a, the entire true. book pretty much takes place in India. So I'm curious why she chose to write it in a different culture. Like, did she go to India and fall in love? Or, or my question did she do is, an eat, pray, love thing? <laughs> did she read about it? My question is, why didn't she just do a J.K. Rowling and then create a whole new world and still mess up the racial component of it. Like, <laughs> she yeah. could have also done that. She could have done that. Yeah, I think we'll just leave this book where it is. I read it a few years ago. If you want to laugh, you can absolutely go read it. Absolutely. Um, just please note, it is not an accurate portrayal of India mm-hmm. or Indian food or Indian men. <laughs> I was out here thinking I'd find myself a rent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but honestly, I'm very serious, though, about, like, the J.K. Rowling comment I just made. Like, I I think both of us 
we are mm-hmm. Harry Potter lovers. I'm absolutely. What what person have you met that isn't a Harry Potter lover? I have yet to meet someone who doesn't love Harry Potter. I actually have met quite a few people really? that have never read it. Okay, but watched it. Um, no, who haven't read or watched it. And I think at this point, it's a pride thing for them where they're like, oh, I've never read it. And I think they enjoy being inflammatory. There's actually, so, there's no, there's actually this podcast called Pottermore or something, Potter something, mm-hmm, where this man is yeah. oh, I've never watched Harry Potter before. Watch, like, I'll read it out loud or comment on yeah. it or something. I'm like, and he comments okay, on it, yeah. Oh, flex, I guess. This is all of my, this is my childhood, but whatever. You're going to monopolize on that? Okay. I think. <laughs> I personally, so my history with Harry Potter is that when I was like four or five years old, my dad was watching the second movie. Mm. I saw Ron cough up slugs and I swore I would never read these books or watch those movies. But then Mm. I was at a party and someone was watching The Half-Blood Prince when I was in fifth grade. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to go read all the books. So So that was my introduction. You were turned off from it too, because I was... Because I saw the Prisoner of Azkaban, and I saw Dobby the House Elf. And I thought that was the creepiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I was so terrified of that thing. I said, "Woohoo!" Because it was like, because you know, also he was causing a bunch of trouble for Harry. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, I was like, I was, I was in like, I, I was really young. You must have been young. Yeah, because I was very, the third very young. movie came out when we were pretty young. Right, and I couldn't understand that Dobby was enslaved. And I also couldn't understand that, like, the nuances in the film, like, at all, right? And I was just terrified. You want to identify with the most powerful character, which is Harry. And, like, I also told myself I'd never read it. But then I think, you know, my classmates were reading and, and I kind of picked up the series. I vividly remember when I read The Deathly Hallows. I finished that book in two days. This is, to this day, I am 21 years old. And I count that as one of my top 10 accomplishments because The Deathly Hallows is thick. It is so fat. I I also finished it in two days. I My birthday party was on a Sunday. I had read the first six books. The seventh book had just came out. My friend gave me the seventh book for my birthday. She wrote on the inside too, which I was like kind of peeved about. I'm still right. peeved about it. Um, But I read the book all of Sunday went to school Monday, came back from school on Monday, and I finished it before I started my homework. Yep. My mom was so pissed at me during the time when I was, like, reading the series because she'd find me in my room, right, with, like, my my light on, under my covers, just reading it. She's, like, I remember her getting mad at me for reading. She pulled books away from me, but, she, and she also thought that I couldn't read as fast as I did. She was like, there's no way you finish that book fast. I'm like, just because I can read fast, just it, just because you can't, it's no. Okay, it's not even that. It's just that we have absolutely no reason to lie. You and I both right. hate rereading books. That's true. And that, that's I what, only reread a book if I like love the book. And that's what I was annoyed with with myself as well because I read that book way too fast. And I maybe I can reread it now because it's a good, I don't know, more than ten years since I last read it, but. I hate rereading books because I already know what happens, so I skip to the juicy parts, you know? I actually, this is something that's changed over time, so I used to hate reading books, Mm -hmm. and if a book isn't good, it's not worth my time, I definitely will not reread it, but if I enjoy reading a book, I will reread it again and again. again There is actually a book by Sarah Dessen that I read at least once a year. I've been reading it at least once a year for the past 
five or six years. Oh, which one is it? It's Lock and Key. I don't know why. I just really enjoy that book. That's like her, I read like, it. most basic book in the entire world. I'm not not. I enjoy the book. I don't know I, what to tell you. Oh my god. I read serious literature as well. Okay, I know you do. I know you do. If you read your pink book, you read your pink book. I read my pink books, but I have a healthy balance. <laughs> how do we though? How do we feel though about like, like talking about Harry Potter? How do we feel about the recent? conversations that we're having with jk rowling you know about the way that she incorporates race into her books yeah i think so i'm not as informed i know that there's a lot of allegations regarding the way that she approaches race Mm -hmm. which i absolutely agree with i think um the way that a lot of the people of color are portrayed within the harry potter universe is not it just does not do them justice um, within the books or within the movies. I'm kind of personally more upset about the movies because it wasn't J.K. Rowling sitting there with a pen and paper and maybe her publisher looking over it. It was an entire team of individuals who saw that being put into on the big screen and being like, oh, this is okay for us to put out for general consumption. Yeah, because I think the points of contention was like Cho Chang, right? Because of her name. And and there's also two last names. Two last names, and I didn't even uh, notice this until someone on TikTok mentioned that in the Potter universe there is literally Severus Snape, Albus Dumbledore, all of these names that are very imaginative. Yet Mm -hmm. you have one Asian character. You would actually two Asian, three Asian characters, right? Because there were the the Potter sisters, and then there was Mm -hmm. Cho Chang. You could have given the Potter sisters completely made up names. You could have. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to give them Indian names for them to be Indian. You didn't have no. to do that. Or Cho Chang. Like, come on, bro. Like, that's that, that's a lot. And I, th- I think even with Cho, there's this discourse going around of the fact that, like, Harry had a, a bit of, like, romantic, a romantic situation with her, a bit of intimacy with her, and then dropped her for a white girl. But I'm not exactly sure if that was truly the intent that was made because there are beliefs of this, like, that oh, you'll play around with a girl of color, but then ultimately choose a white girl. But I really, I think that mm-hmm. might be a stretch. That I don't know, I don't I haven't reread the books enough to be able to see that as the problem. But I think the main point of contention was her was her name. Yeah, and this is obviously just a conversation of what we've read and heard in the past few months regarding this. I personally have not read the books in a good 10 years I don't think you have either Mm-mm. so we are not speaking from our personal observations yeah and, and um, if I'm completely, sorry yeah no go ahead and if I'm being completely honest I wasn't reading it I was really only reading the books for the duo right and to, and this what Harry Potter came out in the 90s right the early 90s yeah the, JK Rowling wrote these books a good 20 years ago and back then I'm not going to lie, I would not expect a white woman to include people of color in her books and do them justice. I would, I just, not, expect, I would not expect that from a white British woman. Remember, these are the OG <laughs> colonizers of the world. You really expect the understanding about racial, uh, racial justice and inclusivity? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think the push to include diversity within popular media, it's actually a very recent movement. Yeah. Um, and the push for representation is also a recent movement, and I absolutely understand why we need to see that, because only once we 
shove it into everyone's faces will it become normalized oh, absolutely. but I think this just was not the standard back in the 90s so I think to some extent we can accept at least the books as a product of their time and I think the best we can do is to hold JK Rowling to a higher standard with the not just her tweets but right. the literature that she posts um starting the, the now rest, yeah all of the books that she's written like after harry potter we have to hold her accountable for like it mm-hmm. i heard that there are many more transgressions apart from just like, the racial ones as well but yeah that poses because i remember a lot of the media i consumed and a lot of the books i read like, that were a bit older i didn't expect them to do that and you have to remember like for example the the shows from the early 2000s or even late 90s like the women were predominantly white they were very skinny just the standard was not what we see today and no absolutely not is it is it unfair to say that i hold books and movies and tvs to a different standard right for me when i see a book i feel like it's more intimate than a movie is mm-hmm. you know i think with books it's just so we talked about Harry Potter and we talked about the Tiger's Curse and we can see it right then and there. When a white woman goes to write about people of color, mm-hmm. she does not have personal experience. There's a reason that the first rule of writing that we are taught in school is write what you know. Mm-hmm. They very clearly, unless they are so embedded into that culture and have such a thorough understanding of that culture they cannot accurately portray people of color and they cannot do those characters justice so I would not expect them Mm -hmm. to include them in their writing I don't think we should expect them to include them in their writing like if someone from say Forks Washington wants to write a book about Forks Washington and only include white people more power to them because I would rather they do that than include people of color and be either intentionally or unintentionally racist in the process yeah and that's completely different from movies and tv shows because there's there are whole production teams that go into making sure that like you produce something that is good right because mm-hmm. i mean i think we've seen in the, the the last couple of months with the push that you know tvs and movies have to include people of color and you see them on screen but you don't see them in like the the you don't see them as directors or you don't see them as writers. You don't see the, pe- the people that are making the decisions. Ultimately, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Like the controversy surrounding the latest Milan movie that just yeah. came out. Absolutely. Like, and there, first, the fact that it's um, in, uh, they used, it was, it was a film at a Uyghur camp, I believe, or. Mm-hmm. It was filmed in a city that had a Uyghur camp, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, that no Asian American people were at the table making the decisions about this film. None at all. Mm-hmm. It was basically white people interpreting Asian culture all over again, which is what Disney has already been doing with all of their movies, like The Lion King, Aladdin, <laughs> Aladdin, <laughs> Aladdin, and even the Mulan that we, I mean, I love Mulan, I'm not even going to lie, but mm-hmm. it, I, I hold TVs and movies to a, to a whole different standard because there, if you don't at least have one person of color, color on your team, you know enough, you have enough sense to make sure that you have POC on screen, but you don't have them in the back. In that, the background, yeah. yeah. That's Where the decisions are being made. Exactly. That just seems too fishy. It means that you know exactly what you're doing and it's not like you can't feign in ignorance anymore. It means any and all push that your company, which let's face it, they probably have some sort of diversity 
message, like almost every single company has one, it means that it's entirely performative if you don't have anything in the background. And I think the only caveat with uh, the distinction that we've made between TVs and the TV and uh, movies and books is that this distinction is for now. I think anything, it's, it's pains me to say this, but like anything that's like maybe more than 15 years ago, like we just need to accept it as a product of its yeah. time. Like we need to understand that a lot of what happens in there is not okay. Um, say, and we need to do better. Let's say pre-Obama. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not saying be passive about the media from before before 2008 but we need to understand that there just there was not a push for this no these are reasons um, and they're good yeah things, and they're very good things because it's it's like we're waking up and i mean i can just i can accredit this to millennials i oh absolutely accredit this to and i actually was having a conversation about this with my cousin just a few days ago about how um the push for diversity is just so in your face all the time Mm -hmm. and at times it can appear to be performative Mm -hmm. but until it's in your face and it is just absolutely everywhere it's not going to become second nature Mm -hmm. and it's not going to become normalized do you remember during like it was really at the beginning of june right when the black lives matter movement was just like on everyone's mind Jackie mm-hmm. Aina and others. I know she's not the one who started it, but like she's the face I remember. She started this shut up, uh, put out or shut up campaign, pull up or shut up, I think, campaign where she was challenging makeup companies to show the list of people of color they had as executives. Right. Yes. And that was really, really important. And it wasn't just black people. She was like, I want to see the women, I want to see the POC, because that's a problem if you don't have them at the top you know, and like, and I think you know, some people found that to be very aggressive, but when you saw the numbers come out, and you saw that these companies are also rely on people of color to use their makeup, but then somehow don't want to put us in place in the, in, um, in places where we can make decisions, that's not right, mm-hmm. it's just not, and now we can hold them accountable, and I, I I'm seeing a good future for us. I am. I'm. I'm not. Really, I'm normally not an optimist, but I really just feel like it's inevitable to have that change because either communities of color are just going to create their own industries, or, or you know, white space is just going to have to let us in. Yes, and also the amount, the percentage of white people is decreasing relative to the number Very of people true. of color. Um, especially when you take, at least like in America, when you take into account the number of immigrants that are coming, no. Mm-hmm. it's just like with that and also with people that are like increasing number of people that are mixed race like it's just the, the people that are just classified as white it's going down it's, it's going inevitable down. i mean and also it's important to understand that this is inevitable just because of the fact that america runs on immigration like mm-hmm. america runs on people who are not from here and like the sooner this country gets it <laughs> the sooner we can all be happy Mm-hmm. And that's not to say there aren't barriers for people of color and that there aren't very serious issues affecting them. I just think that at least in terms of diversity, I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I am optimistic about the direction in which yeah. this is headed. Yes. Like, okay. 
I started watching this show, Girlfriends, on Netflix. I a lot of people grew up with it, but I was too young when it came out. It came out in two thousand, right? So it was not a mm-hmm. show I could watch. And I watched the way that they talk about certain spaces, and there's still issues that transcend to this day. But I like first the women are the women are skinny. It's a bit scary to see that because they're gorgeous women. But I'm like, wow, there's such a push to have women of different sizes and shapes on screen now like have you seen euphoria yeah like they're so different like i mean it's not even just the other show they're just like push a push to see women of different different shapes and different sizes on screen and there's also like the main character she works in a law firm right and for example that in that law firm they didn't let her have mlk day off you know and she had to fight Mm -hmm. for that and just the language around racial equity and diversity and everything it just wasn't there in like the 2000s and so i feel like when people are like are thinking that it's bleak and that you know nothing's happening change is happening we might not see it and it's not happening as fast as we want it to be but we're getting there we're getting mm-hmm. there. and like again thank our millennials do you do you remember how we used to not consider ourselves millennials Absolutely. I think when we were in high school, a lot of the rhetoric surrounding millennials was those articles about stop buying avocado toast and maybe you could be able to buy property. (laughs) That still hurts. That actually still hurts. And I think, because what are we? We're not exactly millennials. We're born in 99, right? We're born in 99. We're not millennials. We're not Generation Z. I think depending on who you ask, they would bump us into one or the other. Mm-hmm. But growing up, like at least in high school, we hated being called millennials. Yeah. And we are definitely not Generation Z oh, because we just not. don't have that sort of chaotic energy. <laughs> we don't. We're not about to burn buildings down. Like we just don't have that. At the same time, I feel like we're becoming more and more millennial-like as we grow up, right? Absolutely. I think we sympathize with them a lot more as we get older because I think when we were in high school, a lot of the... First of all, we didn't understand the concept of nuance. Mm -mm. And on top of that, a lot of the issues that millennials get the most, um, get the most, like, I guess... uh, clap back for for, yeah the most criticism for is for it has to do with legitimate issues that you don't really feel until you are become on your way to becoming an adult yeah um like student loans and job searching and whether or not you're going to go to grad school like those are all decisions that millennials were making when we were in high school and we were all like that i don't understand it why can't they just pay their taxes and go buy a house i don't understand why that's so stressful and it's like Mm -hmm. well when when boomers were buying houses and going to college and everything, it was significantly cheaper, you know, and it was like it wasn't as hard to get into college. Not that we didn't work. It's like I feel like when older folks hear it, they they see it as like you're invalidating my accomplishments and it's not that. Just understand that Absolutely the world not. has changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The world has just changed and it's harder now. Like do you know in high school there was so much push to let my parents to let have my parents let me do sports or clubs because they didn't understand why I had to sell myself with all these extra things you know and that mm-hmm. also could be because they're not from the U.S. right but we have young we have to do so much more than the people that were came before us to be to go to a have. state school right to go to a state school it's like, like literally just the 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 barrier for entering a state school is so high um that if you, I could not even imagine what it's like for a private school. Exactly. 
And so I feel so bad for our younger siblings that are coming up right now because it was already really hard when we were applying and the stress was real. The stress was absolutely real. And now it's like, now we're thinking about grad school potentially. And for me, med school, and I'm like, all right, $200,000, who wants to pay that for me? Like what it means to be mm-hmm. an adult though, because the issues that millennials are dealing with, I'm like, all right, this is the process of adulting. This is a process of growing up. And I think that is really what our podcast, we wanted our podcast to be, that hazy, a hazy space between not exactly being a kid anymore, not relying too much on your parents, but what it meant for us to be adults. Like, for us, being suddenly grown was... I don't know. We came up with the podcast name on the fly, but it just stuck. It felt oh, right. absolutely. No, I think it pretty much encompasses the fact that we are, we're not adults. We are pseudo adults. Mm-hmm. You know, we adults. are treated and expected to act like adults when it is convenient for those around us. Our parents. Um, yes, for our parents, <laughs> especially during the pandemic. Um, you are living at home with your parents and I moved back to live at home with my parents during the pandemic as well. And it's definitely, I think, sometimes feel like I'm back in high school and we are treated like we are 12 years old except when they need us to act like adults oh yeah as in um go to Costco and buy booze yes (laughs) um and it's like it's an interesting place to be because I don't think there's any other time in your life when you feel this disconnect between what your actual age and what you're treated like yeah and I especially when I'm comparing my life to other people my age like one of our closest friends is getting married we are literally the same age and next year she's married we're bridesmaids at her wedding yeah like a few days ago we were talking about what dress we are like what we were talking about the different shades of blue there's like 400 (laughs) different shades of blue available at one bridal salon because and i'm here like okay like this is the middle this is where we're at like our friend is is out here talking about marriage but yet i have a friend who doesn't know what a 401k is and who doesn't know like what credit scores are right and like but we're we're not at either stage. We're smack in the no, middle. No, we are solidly in the middle. I feel like we are doing well for ourselves. We understand the concept of what it's like to be an adult, but you and I are also mentally sometimes choose to be 12 years old. Yeah. So it's, it's fine. And I, I think it goes back to the idea of the standard of adulthood shifting, right? Because I remember mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I used to think that being 16 was so fly. I'd get a car, I'd be driving everywhere, you know, I have all this freedom, and then I turn 16. Because in popular media, yes. we see you turn 16, your parents hand you the keys to a shiny red car, and mm-hmm. you go pick up your friends, and you go get burgers or milkshakes or whatever. And then in reality, you go to Costco. Yep. Your mom requires you to get your Costco membership that you have to pay for, and you drive to Costco in a blue minivan. And pick up said groceries. <laughs> that was my experience. Yes. Mine was a little bit different. I drove a gray sedan, but I pretty much just became a chauffeur. Like the day I turned 16, I became a chauffeur to my little sister. Exactly. And then when we turned 18, we're like, all right, 18 is adulthood. You know, you're legally an adult. You can get tried as an adult. This is the time, you know, real respect comes. Great. 
but then you realize you can only buy a lottery ticket or whatever because you can do anything at 18. Mm-hmm. You, I was a senior in high school when I was 17 day, seventeen years and 364 days old. I was still a senior in high school and it's the weird. day I turned 18. It's weird because you're, you go from having to raise your hand to go to the bathroom to all of a sudden having to know how to manage student loans, knowing how to handle yourself in college, handle your life at that point. Absolutely. It is a very difficult transition. I think it was cushioned for us because we have the support of our parents. Yeah. And let's face it, we are women that are also children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. So we had a very different experience than what you would expect um the typical American teenager to have when they turn eighteen. Mm-hmm. But it's still like that level of being constantly watched to having this like unnecessary amount of freedom was was unnerving but I definitely did not feel like an adult because I feel like all of that new responsibility just hit you so hard that you felt like you were drowning and I feel like adults are cool and calm they know what they're doing right okay and then you turn 21 is that adulting then is that when you're finally an adult no now you're just like an adult that can drink legally Yes, legally drink, but you still don't have anything. But then, no, 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 no. I think, I think what it is is when you turn twenty six, then you're a real adult because you get kicked off your parents' insurance, and you have to fend for yourself. That's true. At that point, you have to have life figured out. Exactly. Because if you're, if your parents are still, if you're still on your parents' health insurance, you got nothing. So this is my problem though, because at that point, I will be smack in the middle of med school. So you might need to claim me as a dependent. Just, just like yeah, you can just go from being a dependent on your parents' taxes <laughs> to being a dependent on my taxes. Um, I don't even know if I can claim another adult as a, as a dependent unless they're my spouse or something like that. Hey. Oh, maybe you could get married. Maybe that's the solution. Get married to you? Are you proposing to Not me? to me, but to oh, someone else. I love the rejection. She said it so quickly. There was no transition. I'm cute. You guys might not be able to see me, but I'm very cute. You don't sound it. Well, thanks a lot. But, you know, with in all honesty, I think where we're at right now is we're trying to figure ourselves out. And I feel like that sounds so cliche. Ugh, but it's the truth. 17-year-old us would have mocked us so oh, hard. God, that's a, I'm figuring myself out, you know. That's also I'm just taking the time I need to figure out my next steps. <laughs> but it's the truth. I think they're cliches, but they're true right they're cliches because they're true we're figuring ourselves out and we are in the poor seniors in college i'm going to go to med school in two years you are going to get a job this year to then you know pay for our lunches until i have money to return the favor but yeah absolutely i'm going to pay for our lunches and i will be keeping very close track of them with interest until you become a rich doctor at which point the tables will turn (laughs) absolutely but you know this it's as much as we can complain about, you know, being treated as, as kids or adults from convenience sometimes. I think that we are absolutely lucky to have the families and like the support system that we've had. And this, and this pandemic has made that so much more clear, you know? Absolutely. We are so fortunate to A, be quarantining with a support system. Like you and I are so fortunate that we get to stay with our families mm-hmm. and 
not go insane from living alone because I know so many people that are staying alone and it's just difficult for them to not interact with anyone Mm -hmm. and on top of that should anything happen to us we have access to healthcare, Mm -hmm. we have access to good food um we're not in we're not lacking in any major way and as much as we love to complain about any minor inconveniences but they're all first world problems we are fine we're fine we're just we're just growing that's it yes that's it we're growing pains oh god oh stop with the pjs please (laughs) (laughs) but thank you guys for listening to our rambling this was our first official podcast um i hope you stick around and listen to the other ones we are really nervous and we hope that vibe with us in the future yeah so if you made it this far first of all i applaud you yeah but thank you so much for lending us your ears and we hope to see you next week on suddenly grown